0: 6 Judges chapter 6 Have you ever experienced a time in your life when your faith was very weak? You felt anxious. You felt fearful. You thought you were barely hanging on spiritually. Many of you remember the struggles we had Related to the construction of this building back in 2009, and I don't need to go into a lot of the details, but it was a time where about 20 subcontractors came together and, and entered into a class action lawsuit, and our church was being sued, and we had to hire a team of lawyers and enter into mediation with the judge, and there was just a lot of things going on during that time in the life of our church that led to a lot of stress for me as pastor, and I had many sleepless nights. I wondered if I was ever going to be able to survive uh, the difficult time. And there were times, and this was in the old building before this building was built, there were times where I would enter the pulpit and and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to preach. I didn't have a lot of confidence. But however, during that time, our elders stepped up to the plate and were a tremendous source of encouragement to me. And they told me in no uncertain terms, They pulled me aside, especially one elder in particular. He took me to lunch. He said, Sean, we've called you to a manual to preach, teach, pray, and shepherd. You don't need to be worrying about all this legal stuff, all this administrational stuff. We as elders will take that off your plate so that you can focus on being an effective pastor to shepherd this flock. And I needed that assurance moving forward. I needed those prayers. I needed that support because I had feeble faith. It was kind of like, you remember when Moses was holding up his arms in the battle and he had to have Aaron and Hur on each side to hold up his arms because if his arms weren't held up, Israelites would lose the battle. I was at a point of anxiety, discouragement, stress, and my faith was very weak. But I'm so thankful that God reached beyond my weakness and strengthened me as a church and this church. And so, during that time in God's providence, he led me to read a book by the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs. It's a weird title of a book. It's called The Bruised Reed. The Bruised Reed. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 42, but really Jesus quotes Isaiah in Matthew 12, 20. Listen to the words of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. This book is a deep exploration of that passage, and basically what the passage means is this. Jesus is tender with those who are weak. You may be like a, a bruised reed, a little plant that you're about ready to be broken in half, or, or you're like a smoldering wick. Your, your flame's about to go out. And Jesus doesn't come and break you, And Jesus doesn't come and blow you out. He comes and He nurses you back to health. He reinvigorates you spiritually. He comes to support you when you are tender, when you are anxious, when you are weak, like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. It reminds me of the man whose son was demon possessed, he was in desperation. The son was throwing himself into the fires and and doing all this manner of of strange things. And and in Mark chapter 9, verse 22, this man comes to Jesus and says, If you can can save my son, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps that's your motto as we start 2024. Help my unbelief. My faith is so weak right now. So as we jump back into the book of Judges, the account of Gideon shows us something very powerful about God's grace to those that are weak, those that are struggling. So here's this chapter's main point. God's tender patience extends beyond our fragile faith. Some of you may have fragile faith this morning. Your faith is weak. I have good news for you. God's patience extends beyond your weakness. And we see that in Gideon. So what I want to do this morning, this this is a long passage, so hang with me. There's nowhere else to go. You're warm in here. This is a a long passage, but it it divides up into five scenes. So we're going to explore all five scenes this morning. So hang on to your hats as we dive into this passage. So part one, verses one through six, we see the downward spiral descends into distress. Now, We've been out of Judges for, for about a month now, a month and a half. And so you have to remember there's that downward spiral that keeps happening. After the judge dies, what happens? The next generation does evil in the sight of the Lord. And this, this is da- downward spiraling into distress. So let's read Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, I'm in Joshua. I need to be in Judges. I'm... I'm We could preach Joshua 6, but I wouldn't be ready for that. Here we go. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Okay, you remember... Barak, Deborah, Jael, back in chapters 4-5, they defeated the enemy and Israel rested for 40 years. But now they do evil in the sight of the Lord again. And in verse 6, it says they were brought very low. Now, metaphorically, that means they were brought low, but really what it means in the original language is they are at the point, the lowest point in their history at this point. They are emotionally Spent. They are barely hanging on. They're the lowest point that the nation has faced. And they cry out to the Lord. Now you have to remember, back in chapter 2, I said when they cried out to the Lord, that was the last time they repented. This is not a crying out and repentance. This is what we call worldly remorse, not godly repentance. There's a difference between godly repentance and worldly remorse. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that lasts, that it leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me tell you the difference between regret and repentance. Regret focuses on self. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like the consequences of having to deal with my sin. I blame God and blame others. I don't like to have to deal with the pain of my sin. I am remorseful. I'm regretful. It's all about me and my discomfort. Repentance, on the other hand, is Godward focused. Repentance says, I've sinned against a holy God. I've done what's wrong in the sight of God. I've trampled on His glory. I've displeased God. Would you please forgive me, Lord, because I want to be back in that right relationship with you. So Israel never repents with the God word repentance. It's worldly regret, worldly remorse, because they're suffering. Now, what should God do in their situation? Now remember the pattern. Israel does evil, they're oppressed, they cry out, and what does God do? God sends a deliverer. God sends a judge, a savior. So if we're going to keep up the pattern, the next thing we would Think we would see is that God raises up a judge, but God does something with a sense of humor. And says, You're not ready for a judge. You have to hear a sermon first. Okay? So here's part two the gracious sermon of rebuke. Okay? God says, You're not ready for a deliverer. You need to have someone come preach you a sermon. So let's read this, this rebuke. So in verses 7 through 10, we see this gracious sermon of rebuke. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you've not obeyed my voice. They need to understand why they are in distress before God delivers them out of distress. Del Ralph Davis says this, understanding God's way of holiness is more important than the absence of pain. We may want out of a bind or as God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not pacify us. One of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word to expose the reason for our helplessness and misery. This is an act of grace. When God brings a prophet to rebuke, if God brings a message to rebuke you, it's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you and he knows you need to hear it. So it's a two-point sermon. Not a three-point sermon. This prophet has two points. Point number one, the Lord your God delivered you. He has been a faithful God. He delivered you out of Egypt. He delivered you out of slavery. He is the Lord your God. Point number two, you've disobeyed him. You've not listened to the voice of your God. In verse 10, he says, I am the Lord. He reminds them, I am the Lord your God. A strong rebuke. Israel had broken the first commandment. To have no other gods before them. I am the Lord your God. The living God will not tolerate any rivals or substitutes. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. So before God raises up a deliverer to save Israel, they need to hear a message. They need to hear a hard-eating sermon to show them that they are sinners in need of salvation. And, and what you would ha- expect to happen next would be for God to say, Israel, you are so bad, you've failed so many times, you are so awful, I'm going to destroy you right here and now. But what does God do? God says, in spite of all that, it's not because you've repented, it's not because you've earned it, it's not because you're all that, Israel, I'm going to raise up a deliverer just because I love you and I'm in covenant with you, not because you deserve it. Romans 5.8 eight. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We don't deserve salvation. We are weak. We are ungodly. Christ died for us, not because we deserved it, but because God is sovereignly showing us His grace alone. All right, let's keep reading. Part 3. After God gives them a servant, God calls a quote-unquote valiant warrior. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11. This is a long section. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Aborazerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Aborazrites. We're introduced to Gideon who's threshing wheat in a little cavern, a little cave, a wine press. Now, Gideon's name means hacker or hewer, one who cuts things down. He's out there cutting down the wheat. Now, this is a play on words because as we'll see in a moment, he lives up to his name of being a, a hacker. And under normal circumstances, the Israelites would go up on high ground and they would thresh the wheat on high ground so they could throw up the wheat and let the wind blow the chaff away, and so it was easier to thresh. But they couldn't do that because these marauding Midianites who came like locusts, they had to hide out in this cave. So Midian's kind of hiding out in this wine vat in this cave. And there's a a phrase that's repeated. Throughout this chapter, as I was doing study on this passage this week, it just kept, it kept showing up over and over again as this Lord wants us to hear this. So in verse 12, that's the key. What does God say to him in verse 12? He says to him, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Now, it's kind of funny. He calls him mighty man of valor. Hey, mighty man of valor, you who are hiding out in this wine press, You're going to go fight. And then Gideon kind of gets a little upset about the angel. At first he thinks the angel's a man. He kind of forgets God's faithfulness. In verse 13 he's basically saying, hey, if, if, if God's so great of a God, why have the miracles stopped? He's kind of forgotten us. Why are we in the dire straits that we're in? If God's for us, if God's with us, I really don't see it. And sometimes, don't we have that attitude ourselves? For those of us that know our Bibles and know our theology and have the knowledge, we know God is sovereign. We know God is powerful. We know all the Bible stories. But sometimes when we're going through hard times and our heart of hearts, our heart doesn't catch up with our head and we tend to doubt God and say, God, where are you? I don't know where you are in the midst of this, God. I've heard about you. I know you can do great things, but you're not doing things for me right now. I need you to move right now, God, please do it now. Now, in verse 14, we see the commissioning of Gideon. And I had to read this multiple times because at first glance, I didn't catch it. And maybe you didn't catch it. But look at verse 14. Okay, so Gideon's arguing with God. Hey, God, where are you? God, you're not there. God, you're calling me to go save. I don't see where you are. And look at verse 14. God has a sense of humor. Notice what he says there. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Eve. Okay, Gideon, you're complaining. Why don't you go in your own strength and see how that works out? You don't need me to fix this. If you don't think I'm there, if you don't think I'm present, you go in your own power. You go in your own strength. You go try to fix the situation. Now, the question is, can Gideon do this? He's going to be totally unsuccessful. He's going to be utterly a failure if he goes in his own power. Now, very similar Gideon's call here to Moses at the burning bush. Almost the exact same Hebrew wording. Remember when the burning bush, the Lord says to Moses, go down to Pharaoh, and what does Moses say? You got a mistake, God. Who who are you calling me? Okay. What is Gideon's protest? I'm from the weakest clan. Manasseh is the weakest clan. And not only that, I'm, I'm like from the, the youngest in my father's house. Are you really asking me to do this? I'm the lowest of the low. Okay, look at verse 16. What do you see repeated? The Lord said to him, But I will be with you. That's the second time. Get in, you need to hear this. I will be with you. It's almost the exact same wording. That the Lord told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, 12-14. He said, I will be with you. He said that to Moses. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. Let me just ask you a question. What is the greatest promise that you can hear from the living God? I am with you. That's what the Israelites wanted to hear. What did God say to Abraham? Genesis twenty-eight fifteen: Behold, I am with you. Wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. I will be with you. What did God tell Joshua? Joshua 1.5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And what were some of Jesus' last words before he went back to heaven in the Great Commission? Behold, I am with you always to the end. Of the age. So God often chooses to display his power through people who are hesitant, who are clueless, who are fearful. And this does not necessarily mean that Gideon is sinful, it just means he has weak faith. Think about what God is asking him to do and put yourself in his shoes. I want you to go out and fight against the Midianite army that comes down as locusts, that's devouring everything. So Gideon needs to be absolutely sure that this is God. So he says, I need a sign, God. Let me bring out some food. So he goes and brings out a pot of a goat and a little cake and puts it on a rock. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He puts his staff on there and what happens? (laughs) Consumes it. This fire comes out of the rock. And then the angel vanishes. He's like, okay, this must be God. That's kind of freaky, this vanishing act. And then in verse 23, he hears again the encouraging words of the Lord. Okay, I will be with you. I will be with you. Okay, third time, verse 23. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Just another way of saying I'll be with you. Peace be to you. I'm going to be with you. You're not going to die, Gideon. I'm with you. And so Gideon builds an altar there, and he calls the place Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now think about that for a moment. What did Israel need most? Do they need peace from their enemies, the Midianites? Or did they need peace with the living God because of their idolatry? They needed peace with their God. Now, yes, they needed peace from the Midianites, but... It was in that moment that Gideon understood that he had come face to face with the living God, had not died, and God said three times, I'll be with you, I'll be with you, my peace I give to you, I will be with you. Now, here's part four. Before Gideon can go lead, he's got a clean house. So God commands Gideon to quote-unquote clean house house let's see that unfold verse 25 through 32 that night the lord told him take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of baal that your father has and cut down the asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the lord your god on top Of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who's done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Before Gideon had to go into battle, he had to face a spiritual battle in his own home. His own father had pagan idolatry set up in the backyard, if you will. And Gideon lives up to his name, Hacker. Chopper Downer. What does he do? He goes at night and hacks down these altars to Baal and Asherah. Because how could Gideon serve the Lord while he had idolatry in his own home? You can't serve two masters. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Gideon's afraid. So what does he do? He goes at night. Now, you may say, come on, Gideon, man up. You're this man of value. Why are you going at night? Well, he he's afraid. He's, af- he's afraid of the townspeople. That's why he goes at night. And this is clearly a fear of man situation. You've been there before. I don't want to cause waves. I, I don't want to give in to the to, to, to what everybody's doing, so I'm just going to kind of give in to the peer pressure. I don't want to stand against the crowd. I've got this fear of man. I, I'm worried about what other people are going to say about me. Proverbs 29:25, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man. Proverbs, I mean, sorry, Psalm 56, 3-4, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to us? Now, here's the irony of the situation. The men want to put Gideon to death for chopping down the false gods. If they had understood Deuteronomy chapter 13, they would realize that anybody who leads somebody to worship the false god should be put to death by stoning. So who should have been put to death? The entire town should have been put to death for their idolatry, not Gideon who goes and tears down the false gods. And Gideon's father, the idolater that he was, surprisingly comes out and stands up for Gideon and basically urges the town people to save his life. He basically says this, Hey hey, guys, Baal can defend himself. You don't need to defend Baal. If he's truly a god, he'll avenge himself. He'll get his revenge. You don't need to worry about putting Gideon to death. If Baal's truly a god, Gideon will get his. Now, Gideon may not have been the most courageous of men, but he did tear down the altars. And he had ten friends to help him do it. And it was under the cover of night. But Matthew Henry says this, quote, note, it is good to appear for God when we are called to it, though there be few or none to help us, because God can incline the hearts of those to stand by us from whom we little expect assistance, let us do our duty, and then trust God with our safety. You may be afraid to stand up for Christ, you may think there's nobody with me, but sometimes that little step of courage that you have may be the motivation that will help others to come stand alongside you. The problem is everybody's standing over there and nobody takes the step to stand up. In our day and age, we need more people to stand up and be bold and to be strong and to take risks for the glory of God. And that will serve as a motivation for many to look at that and say, okay, I see the courage in him or her. I'm going to follow. Now, you'd think after all of this, Three times God said, I will be with you, I will be with you, peace to you. I've blown up this, or I've, I've I've not blown it up, I've, I've caught on fire this food on this rock. What else do you need, Gideon? Well, here's part five. Gideon needs some more assurance. I'm not sure I'm the man for the job. So let's see how this chapter ends with Gideon's need for assurance. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, And they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizurites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test you just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Verse 34 is important because we've seen this pattern with when God raises up a judge, what does he do? He empowers him with the Holy Spirit. But notice the wording here in verse 34. He was clothed with the Holy Spirit. Remember back in verse 14, God says, hey, you go in your own power. You go in your own strength. Gideon's like, I don't know about this. And God says, no, you can't, but now you can. Because you've been clothed with the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of putting on the whole armor of God. Gideon was brave. He was valiant to an extent. He went and tore down the idols. But he could not lead Israel into battle unless, number one, he had the idols out of his life and he had the Spirit of God, the full armor of God. He was clothed with that power from on high. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So we too, like Gideon, must be clothed with God's power to do his will. Romans 13.14, but put on... Or clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 4, 24. And to put on the new self. That's what I think I was supposed to have. Ephesians 4, through 24. Not Ephesians 2. This is where I was supposed to do for my prayer of confession. So now it's coming back to me. Ephesians. So, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. Okay. After all of this, Gideon puts out a fleece. Now, contrary to popular opinion, this passage is not telling you how to discern God's will for your life by putting out a fleece. You've ever heard that term? I'm going to put out a fleece. Lord, if you really want me to have this job, they have to call me right now tonight, and then I'll know that they've given me that job. Or Lord, if you really want me to have this house, I'm putting out a fleece, that you'll show me a sign by having the sellers lower the price by midnight or whatever. This story is not about putting out a fleece in order for God to do something. This is really about Gideon's disbelief in God's clear word. God had told him, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Did Gideon not have the information? No, he had all the information he needed. He knew exactly what God expected of him, but he did not want to do it. Now, That plays very importantly in our lives because we have everything God has given us to do, but how often do we not want to do God's will? And we'll play a little game. God, give me a sign if you want me to do this really uncomfortable thing because I really don't want to do what your clear word says, but I want a sign to show me how to get out of it. We often do that. What's the main point of this narrative? I told you at the very beginning. God's tender patience extends beyond our Fragile faith. Gideon asked God to do the fleece twice. And do you see God rebuking him? What does it say? God did it. God did it. God answered that request and strengthened his faith. Now, why fleece and why do? Have you thought about do Dew in the Bible is often a symbol of God's blessing, God's power that revives, it invigorates, it, 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 it soaks the parched land after it's been in the desert, and it brings forth light. Also, let me remind you, Baal is the pagan god of rain. As a matter of fact, Baal had a pagan daughter, and you know what the daughter this goddess was named? Her name in English is Dewey. So the symbolism of the fleece is that no matter how powerful you think Baal is, God is way more powerful. And Gideon, you're going in the strength of this God who can make the dew soaked and the ground dry one time, and the second time the ground soaked and the dew dry. Now, We don't want to go beyond what the text says. We don't want to get into making allegories or symbolism that aren't there. But I do want you to think about the imagery here of the the dew, of something that was dry and parched as opposed to something that was soaked and saturated. You may be here today, and you represent the dry ground, not the soaked wool. In the sense that you are spiritually dead. And you are dry. And you are like a waterless desert in your rebellion and sin. And you are overwhelmed with your guilt. And you know in your heart of hearts that you have no spiritual life. You're dry. You're what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at the work in sons of disobedience. You are spiritually dead today. And if you are spiritually dead, what do you need? You need spiritual life. And you cannot give yourself that spiritual life. Only God can pour his waters of salvation into your life, saturate that deadness, saturate that dryness, and bring forth new life. Ephesians 2.5, even when you were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. So what's the condition of your soul today? Is your faith feeble? Are you weak? Are you trying to do things in your own strength? God's tender patience extends beyond your Fragile and feeble faith. Jeremiah seventeen five through 8 Thus says the Lord. Cursed, and that's not good, cursed. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed, that's a good thing, is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out the roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Which one are you? The one who trusts in yourself and your dry and parched or the one that trusts in the Lord and you're planted in those streams of water? Are you like the wool that's been saturated with God's life? Are you like the dead, dry ground? So I have a prayer for you this morning from Isaiah 58:11. Hear this prayer over you this morning as a congregation and let this sink into your soul. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, we thank you that you will guide us continually, and you will satisfy us in scorched places, that you will make our bones strong, And that we will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Like the fleece that was saturated with water as opposed to the dry parched ground. You promise to fill us with power, to clothe us with your Holy Spirit, and to equip us when we are weak. Lord, there may be many here this morning that are barely hanging on spiritually. They're tired, they're weak, their faith is fragile. And Lord, the last thing they need to hear is pull it together, snap out of it, do your best. Lord, what they need to hear is what Gideon heard, I will be with you. Lord, let us leave today with that promise that you're with us, that you're our peace. That, Lord, you've clothed us with your Holy Spirit. That you condescend to our weakness and answer these foolish prayers that we have at times. Not because we deserve it, because, God, you love us and you want to show us your power. So, Lord, help us in our weakness to know that when we are weak is when we're truly strong. And it's not because of our strength. It's not because of our bravery or our valiant efforts. It's because of the Spirit in us. So Lord, thank you that you are with us. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today that they would say in their heart of hearts that they are spiritually dead. They are spiritually dead. They don't, they don't have life. They, they're not saved by grace alone. Lord, would today be the day that they go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive? Holy Spirit, would you make them alive by your grace alone? Would they cry out to you, Jesus, in faith, coming to you as the only way of salvation, Jesus. May we all leave this place encouraged and empowered because we know that, God, you are with us. And Jesus, you promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.